263, Part 3, Chapter 4. Welcome to Craftlet. The podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 263, Beached. This week's episode is brought to you by Knit Circus, the e-newsletter that can arrive in your mailbox delivering three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can sign up at www.knitcircus.com. And Seed Pod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative. We publish books, not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? And Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. Well, hopping to it once again, we waste no time in getting to Gulliver. This week, we, well, first off, last week, we learned the science behind the Laputa floating island. And we learned that Swift, while having great insight and, and forethought and a great imagination, um, got a couple of things really, really right, and a couple of things really, really wrong. This week is different. This week, he's pretty much done with crazy people getting whacked on the head to remind them to listen on the floating island. And now he's going to go down to the ground, to Balnabarbi. Now, he uses a word very oddly for our modern ear, and that word is projector. He is using a projector as a personification of someone who likes to propose projects. So they're not a projector. It's not a misspelling or a misguided effort to talk about a scholar of any sort. He is talking about someone who is, is in fact a scholar, but who is walking around all the time proposing new projects. These projects are a lot more like Rube Goldberg devices than they are anything actually useful. And you'll laugh because he gives a great explanation of a particular project late in the chapter. Now, early in the chapter, he makes a crack that he was only able to hang out with women, tradesmen, flappers, and court pages. And of course, by starting off with women, you know, you know he's in seriously bad straits because, of course, women can't possibly be intellectual. And the rest of the people who he lists, tradesmen, flappers, court pages, also not intellectuals, end up in Laputa. Intellectuals are the only people worth talking to, as long as you have a flapper. So he, he's, going to, <laughs> he's going to talk about somebody who's very, very ignorant, and why he's considered very, very ignorant is funny. But then he's going to go on and talk about a guy named Munodi. It's spelled M-U-N-O-D-I. And of course, this, this brings to mind, it looks like Mundi, and we had uh, Evremond back in uh, Dickens. I, no one has quite gotten a beat on what Munodi is really referring to. And there's even some speculation about who. One possibility, one very strong possibility, is that Munodi is uh, a stand-in for Sir William Temple. This is who Swift worked for for an awfully long time. And, um, and, and Temple, like Swift, 
tended to look back at the the old ways and you know not just respect your elders and that kind of thing but like why change it if it's not broken they they didn't they didn't see the value in doing the new thing just for the sake of it being new and so that that makes sense for Munodi but there are other things that he says about Munodi and how he's treated in court and stuff that makes some people go back to um, Oxford and Bolingbroke, those the Tory leaders who got busted and, and um, what Bolingbroke got kicked out, I think. So it's hard to know, and it almost doesn't matter. What matters is Munodi's a really interesting character. And when you listen to the description of the landscape in in the, the town, in Balnabarbi in general, and then as you go off to... Oh, and not just Balnabari in general, but the town of Legado in specific. And Legado is probably a stand-in for England, uh, for London. Uh, Listen to how the landscape changes and then think about what we learned in the Dust Bowl. About, you know, rotating crops. About, oh, I don't know, doing it the way the Native Americans had done it about not leaching the ground of all of its nutrients, about um, if you have farm animals, you have the farm animals awful help to fertilize your everything else. You know, there was, there was a symbiosis in the way things used to be done. And when you mess with that, you get a dust bowl. And I, and I know it's more complicated than that, but just for the sake of, of analogy to where Swift is going. You're, you're going to see a bunch of that stuff happening. And, and the consequences for Munadi, uh, Munadi not following in step with the conventional wisdom, quote-unquote, of the day. And that's actually really about everything. There's one little thing I'll fill you in on at the end, but, uh, but it's, not, it's not a particularly long chapter. I'm sorry about that. But uh, I'm at the beach while you're listening. <laughs> and I didn't have time before I left to give you two chapters back to back. So I hope you will appreciate and enjoy Part 3, Chapter 4 of Gulliver's Travels by Jonathan Swift, read to you by Aaron Siegler. Chapter 4. The author leaves Laputa, is conveyed to Balnabarbi, arrives at the metropolis. A description of the metropolis and the country adjoining... The author, hospitably received by a great lord, his conversation with that lord. Although I cannot say that I was ill-treated in this island, yet I must confess I thought myself too much neglected, not without some degree of contempt. For neither prince nor people appeared to be curious in any part of knowledge, except mathematics and music, wherein I was far their inferior, and upon that account very little regarded." On the other side, after having seen all the curiosities of the island, I was very desirous to leave it, being heartily weary of those people. They were indeed excellent in two sciences for which I have great esteem, and wherein I am not unversed, but at the same time so abstracted and involved in speculation that I never met with such disagreeable companions. I conversed only with women, tradesmen, flappers, and court pages during two months of my abode there, by which, at last, I rendered myself extremely contemptible, yet these were the only people from whom I could ever receive a reasonable answer. I had obtained, by hard study, a good degree of knowledge in their language. I was weary of being confined to an island where I received so little countenance, 
and resolved to leave it with the first opportunity. There was a great lord at court, nearly related to the king, and for that reason alone used with respect. He was universally reckoned the most ignorant and stupid person among them. He had performed many eminent services for the crown, had great natural and acquired parts, adorned with integrity and honor, but so ill an ear for music that his detractors reported he had been often known to beat time in the wrong place. Neither could his tutors, without extreme difficulty, teach him to demonstrate the most easy proposition in the mathematics. He was pleased to show me many marks of favor, often did me the honor of a visit, desired to be informed in the affairs of Europe, the laws and customs, the manners and learning of the several countries where I had traveled. He listened to me with great attention and made very wise observations on all I spoke. He had two flappers attending him for state, but never made use of them except at court and in visits of ceremony, and would always command them to withdraw when we were alone together. I entreated this illustrious person to intercede in my behalf with His Majesty for leave to depart, which he accordingly did, as he was pleased to tell me with regret. For indeed he had made me several offers very advantageous, which, however, I refused with expressions of the highest acknowledgment. On the sixteenth day of February, I took leave of His Majesty in the court. The king made me a present to the value of about two hundred pounds English, and my protector, his kinsman, as much more, together with a letter of recommendation to a friend of his in Legado, the metropolis. The island being then hovering over a mountain about two miles from it, I was let down from the lowest gallery in the same manner as I had been taken up. The continent, as far as it is subject to the monarchy of the flying island, passeth under the general name of Balnabarbi, and the metropolis, as I said before, is called Legado. I felt some little satisfaction in finding myself on firm ground, I walked to the city without any concern, being clad like one of the natives and sufficiently instructed to converse with them. I soon found out the person's house to whom I was recommended, presented my letter from his friend the grandee in the island, and was received with much kindness. This great lord, whose name was Minodi, ordered me an apartment in his own house, where I continued during my stay and was entertained in a most hospitable manner. The next morning after my arrival, he took me in his chariot to see the town, which is about half the bigness of London, but the houses very strangely built, and most of them out of repair. The people in the streets walked fast, looked wild, their eyes fixed, and were generally in rags. We passed through one of the town gates, and went about three miles into the country, where I saw many laborers working with several sorts of tools in the ground, but was not able to conjecture what they were about. Neither did I observe any expectation either of corn or grass, although the soil appeared to be excellent. I could not forbear admiring at these odd appearances, both in town and country, and I made bold to desire my conductor that he would be pleased to explain to me what could be meant by so many busy heads, hands, and faces, both in the streets and the fields, because I did not discover any good effects they produced." But on the contrary, I never knew a soil so unhappily cultivated, houses so ill-contrived and so ruinous, or a people whose countenances and habit expressed so much misery and want. This Lord Minodi was a person of the highest rank, and had been some years governor of Legado, but by a cabal of ministers was discharged for insufficiency. However, the king treated him with tenderness as a well-meaning man, but of a low, contemptible understanding. When I gave that free censure of the country and its inhabitants, 
he made no further answer than by telling me that I had not been long enough among them to form a judgment, and that the different nations of the world had different customs, with other common topics to the same purpose. But when we returned to his palace, he asked me how I liked the building, what absurdities I observed, and what quarrel I had with the dress and looks of his domestics. This he might safely do, because everything about him was magnificent, regular, and polite. I answered that His Excellency's prudence, quality, and fortune had exempt him from those defects which folly and beggary had produced in others. He said if I would go with him to his country house about twenty miles distant, where his estate lay, there would be more leisure for this kind of conversation. I told His Excellency that I was entirely at his disposal, and accordingly we set out next morning. During our journey, he made me observe the several methods used by farmers in managing their lands, which to me were wholly unaccountable, for except in some very few places, I could not discover one ear of corn or blade of grass. But in three hours' travelling, the scene was wholly altered. We came into a most beautiful country, farmers' houses at small distances, neatly built, the fields enclosed, containing vineyards, corn grounds, and meadows. Neither do I remember to have seen a more delightful prospect. His Excellency observed my countenance to clear up. He told me with a sigh that there his estate began and would continue the same till we should come to his house, that his countrymen ridiculed and despised him for managing his affairs no better and for setting so ill an example to the kingdom, which, however, was followed by very few, such as were old and willful and weak like himself. We came at length to the house which was indeed a noble structure built according to the best rules of ancient architecture. The foundations, gardens, walks, avenues, and groves were all disposed with exact judgment and taste. I gave due praise to everything I saw, whereof His Excellency took not the least notice till after supper, when, there being no third companion, he told me with a very melancholy air that he doubted he must throw down his houses in town and country to rebuild them after the present mode, destroy all his plantations, and cast others into such a form as modern usage required, and give the same directions to all his tenants, unless he would submit to incur the censure of pride, singularity, affectation, ignorance, caprice, and perhaps increase his majesty's displeasure. That the admiration I appeared to be under would cease or diminish when he had informed me of some particulars which probably I never heard of at court, the people there being too much taken up in their own speculations to have regard to what passes here below. The sum of his discourse was to this effect, that about forty years ago certain persons went up to Laputa, either upon business or diversion, and after five months' continuance came back with a very little smattering in mathematics, but full of volatile spirits acquired in that airy region." that these persons, upon their return, began to dislike the management of everything below, and fell into schemes of putting all arts, sciences, languages, and mechanics upon a new foot. To this end, they procured a royal patent for erecting an academy of projectors in Legado, and the humour prevailed so strongly among the people that there is not a town of any consequence in the kingdom without such an academy." In these colleges, the professors contrive new rules and methods of agriculture and building and new instruments and tools for all trades and manufacturers whereby, as they undertake, one man shall do the work of ten, 
a palace may be built in a week of materials so durable as to last forever without repairing. All the fruits of the earth shall come to maturity at whatever season we think fit to choose, and increase an hundredfold more than they do at present with innumerable other happy proposals. The only inconvenience is that none of these projects are yet brought to perfection, and in the meantime the whole country lies miserably waste, the houses in ruins and the people without food or clothes, by all which, instead of being discouraged, they are fifty times more violently bent upon prosecuting their schemes, driven equally on by hope and despair, that as for himself, being not of an enterprising spirit, he was content to go on in the old forms, to live in the houses his ancestors had built, and act as they did in every part of life without innovation, that some few other persons of quality and gentry had done the same, but were looked on with an eye of contempt and ill-will as enemies to art, ignorant and ill-commonwealthsmen, preferring their own ease and sloth before the general improvement of their country. His lordship added that he would not by any further particulars prevent the pleasure I should certainly take in viewing the Grand Academy, whither he was resolved I should go. He only desired me to observe a ruined building upon the side of a mountain about three miles distant, of which he gave me this account, that he had a very convenient mill within half a mile of his house, turned by a current from a large river and sufficient for his own family as well as a great number of his tenants, that about seven years ago, a club of those projectors came to him with proposals to destroy this mill and build another on the side of that mountain on the long ridge whereof a long canal must be cut for a repository of water to be conveyed up by pipes and engines to supply the mill, because the wind and air upon a height agitated the water and thereby made it fitter for motion, and because the water descending down a declivity would turn the mill with half the current of a river whose course is more upon a level. He said that being then not very well with the court, and pressured by many of his friends, he complied with the proposal, and after employing a hundred men for two years, the work miscarried, the projectors went off, laying the blame entirely upon him, railing at him ever since, and putting others upon the same experiment with equal assurance of success, as well as equal disappointment. In a few days we went back to town, and His Excellency, considering the bad character he had in the academy, would not go with me himself, but recommended me to a friend of his to bear me company thither. My lord was pleased to represent me as a great admirer of projects and a person of much curiosity and an easy belief, which indeed was not without truth, for I had myself been a sort of projector in my younger days. Now Swift is probably not trying to tell us that Gulliver is a complete Rube Goldberg moron, but, but more that Gulliver is missing the insane lengths that the projectors in Balnabarbi are going to, and, and in, in Legato, are, are going to. And instead, he's, he's seeing only the parallel that he f- tries to be kind of a forward-thinking kind of guy. And when he has an opportunity, he takes it. And when he can go off on a ship and learn something new and go and explore, he will do that. And, um, and it's, it's just an interesting place to leave it. And I say that because remember back in Brobdingnag how Gulliver was starting to go, you know, all Stockholm syndrome on us, and 
and start to see humans as small, inferior, small-minded things the way the giants did? Well, I just think it's kind of interesting that after this whole description, and, and he clearly likes Munodi and, and what he's achieved on his estate, that at the end of it, he's sort of starting to see himself as maybe part of the problem instead of part of the solution. It's an interesting place for Swift to position him at at the end of this. And of course, Isaac Asimov, in, in our our little annotations to this this chapter, has to throw in that uh, Swift is merely being a little impatient here because 50 years after Swift's death, the steam engine was invented. And of course, it did do the work of 10 or more men all at once. And fine. Well, I think we can give that to Isaac Asimov. That's that's okay. He also does point out that if you were to go into any research university or research lab or, or anything like that, and you looked at the long list of projects that were being done, you would also be able to find uh, a couple of humdingers where you go, really? That's what you're studying? But that if you look at the vast quantity of useful research that is done, uh, you know, it's, it's what brings us things like antibiotics. And oh my gosh, did you see that there's a thing? I just got a thing from our pharmacy by email and a link to the CDC. Evidently, whooping cough, there is an outbreak. And if you or your children have not been vaccinated for whooping cough, you might want to see about that. And I didn't realize the whooping cough part of whooping cough actually comes after the bacteria has left your body. The bacteria has already done its damage and it has left, died off, run its course, whatever. The whoop, the part that'll kill you, comes after. So if you catch it early on, and unfortunately it looks just like a common cold, if you catch it early on, you can take antibiotics and that's nifty. And you can maybe lessen the impact. But basically this bacteria gets into your lungs, it attacks the cilia, the little fibers that accept oxygen, and kills them. And then you're left with these horrible whooping hacking fits. And the whooping comes from you not being able to get any air in after a coughing fit. For people like me with asthma, this is very scary. And the whole upshot of this is the best way to not get whooping cough, aside from not coming into contact with someone who's coughing, because it's an incredibly viciously contagious little little bugger, uh, the best way to protect yourself and your family and your loved ones is to get a vaccine. And uh, certainly don't take my medical advice, please talk to your doctors and all that. But I didn't know that whooping cough was still going around. You know, it's like measles, mumps, all of that stuff that we just don't see much of anymore because of vaccinations. Um, the stuff that used to kill kids frequently. Um, yeah, so whooping cough, be careful because that's pretty nasty. But anyway, the re I think the reason I thought of that at all was because of uh, research and um, the useful research uh, is certainly 
out there and happening and the ridiculous research probably is too but it's kind of like you know throwing the baby out with the bathwater to say oh research scientists bad let's look at the grand total of useful research that goes on before you pick out the one goofy ridiculous lame one um is the point asimov was trying to make and while i am basically down with that it does also bring to mind you know, question, questions of ethics and scientific ethics and stuff, which I always find fascinating, is um, because I'm, I'm, as you might be able to tell, usually a very curious person. And I do like to know how things work. And I do like to find new stuff to learn about. And I think that's very exciting. But there's also maybe it's just getting older, I don't know, but the older I get, the more I start to go, yeah, that cloning thing is really cool, but I kinda get nervous about that. And, you know, being able to uh, potentially get into the DNA and, you know, perfect your fetus and stuff like that, those things always kind of creep me out. And it, it makes me wonder if, if that wasn't part of where which was going was that the research for research's sake without an examination of the ethics is probably a bad idea. Because like what happened with the land and, and poor Munodi, you know, he's going to be punished he's going to lose everything if he doesn't get in line with the scientific convention of his day but the scientific convention of his day is going to ruin his estate and his people's ability to thrive and you know raise food and all that stuff uh just like the story of the mill he had a perfectly working mill that did just fine until uh the rube goldberg device came in and of course i think where Swift starts with um, Munodi being thought to be a, a complete imbecile because he offended music, you know, which is just some abstract concept. It's not a person. It's not somebody who's going to care. But but that offense that was given to music was what made everybody think he was just so ignorant, and uh, and that the only reason he's treated well is because he's a relative of the king. It's um, it's interesting, and it, and it should leave you thinking a bit. I like that. Anyway, I will talk to you for real in more or less real time in a week when I am back from the beach and rested and books are done and life is good and all that. And I hope you have a great week. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. There are many ways to listen to Craftlet. You can listen on your smartphone via the Stitcher Radio app. You can subscribe free through iTunes, or you can download and listen to the iPhone, iTouch, and Android app, where you'll receive occasional extras for the show. Craftlet is supported in a number of ways. Knit Circus, the free e-newsletter featuring three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at knitcircus.com. Also, the What Would Madame Defarge Knit series, Volume 2, What Else Would Madame Defarge Knit, is now in pre-orders. You can find out more from the links in the show notes at craftlet.com. Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories from the heart and home. 
and Seedpod Publishing, a micro-publisher cooperative publishing books not for their value as products, but for their value. Any questions? Craftlet is made possible by the generous support of its listeners, and for that, I am truly grateful. If you would like to help support the show, please know there are various ways to donate, and all of them help keep Craftlet and Just the Books free and available to you whenever you feel the need for a good story. And remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on.